Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. So, are these your notes? These, <laughs> these are your notes about what we're going to say? That's a really good question. Um, sculptor doesn't put their <laughs> slab of clay or whatever on their plinth and then start doing the eyelashes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, yeah, it's like gushing over your back. That's <laughs> <laughs> for everything. <laughs> this is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. <laughs> we're here first. We're going <laughs> to... Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. I'm Jamie and joining me today is Wolf Literary's international super agent, Kate Johnson. <laughs> Hi, Kate. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for that. Oh, you're welcome. I'm fascinated by the nature of your your work because you are based in Bristol. Is that right? That's right. But you represent authors um, in both the US and the UK. How does that work? Um, so I, it happened, um, I'll start with that because I had been working in New York for about nine years for another agency and my husband who's British had moved there for me and around, um, four years into his living there, we just, he needed a shake up and I needed a shake up. Um, and I already knew some of the ladies working at Wolf Literary who were happy to have me work abroad, um, and really wanted someone to expand their literary fiction list um, and so I, I actually started with a few months up in Glasgow where my husband was going to grad school okay. and we've moved to Bristol, um, so that I could commute to London if I needed to, and he can get to Newport where he was, is still working for the office for national statistics. So it's a compromised city, but I've really grown to love it here. <laughs> and the UK part of my job has really expanded and kind of be, been able to become my own since I've been here. So I... Um, do have a mix of clients now who are both American and British. And I also now handle UK rights for the agency and for a, an agent, Gillian McKenzie, as well. Oh, okay. So w when you came over, all of your clients were US-based, is that right? That's right, yeah. I see. And has has it sort of changed to be more UK-heavy now in terms of your list? It is it is getting there. I still right. find, um, well, obviously I have you know, all of my previous clients from the US and I I find that some of my sensibilities still seem to align there or I tend to still be reading sort of US story magazines or publications where I just tend to, um, you know, get get American media. And so that's still part a healthy kind of part of my literary diet. Um, but certainly I'm, I'm very keen to find more British writers. My first client was a Glaswegian named Beatrice Collin who has... Um, sadly passed away. Oh. Um, but that was, yeah, I, I actually like took an offer from Flatiron Books from Amy Einhorn, like outside of a chip shop around 9pm in Glasgow. <laughs> and and um, <laughs> that was kind of the start of being able to make that transition. Amazing. Is it, um, you obviously uh, sort of keep an ear out for both US and UK markets. Is it very different in terms of uh, the way that you approach the the writing and and what you're proposing to publishers. 
Um, the the writing, I think the style is so personal to each writer, no matter where they're from. And I have some writers who I think see themselves as more British. And I don't know if I, or British versus American. And I don't know if I always agree with their take. Um, okay. But I, if, if they're based in Britain, um, it tends to make sense for me to approach a British publisher first. Mm-hmm. And likewise for the U.S., but there are some cases where it's a more international story or nonfiction where we might try something simultaneously. Right. Yeah. 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 I have um, a few of my friends are YA authors, and there's I often hear around the industry that the YA market is much larger in the U.S. Have you found that as well? Completely. I, I do some YA submissions over here in the U.K. for colleagues, and it is such a tight market over here. Um, and one thing that's changing here, I think expanding, but slowly is the market for graphic novels, um, mm-hmm. which I love and which my, my colleagues do a bit of. And it's just a smaller market. And because it's smaller, I do think even just stuff like production costs that go into something illustrated and colorful like that really limit what they can do over here. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd not considered that graphic novels was um, a much, much larger uh, outside of the UK. Yeah. But- a lot of writers that I speak to are reluctant to submit their work to agents overseas. Do you think that, I mean, having done it a long time before a lot of other people, you know, because a lot of people have been forced to work more remotely in the pandemic and the lockdowns and things. Hmm. What are the sort of different challenges that come from working internationally versus locally with between an agent and a writer? Um the biggest challenge is certainly one that has been bridged a little bit with the pandemic and being able to hop on Zoom anytime. But it's, you know, wonderful to meet my clients in person and be able to have that really, you know, face-to-face chat, which I do think is different from a 40-minute Zoom meeting. Yeah. And I, I really have always been a night owl. And so this time zone has suited me as far as working late and being able to overlap and be available for my clients who are five hours behind or eight hours behind if they're on the West coast. Um, but that's something that I would, you know, if I were working, if I were an author and starting out and working with an international agent, I would want to be aware of and ask that question about availability. Oh, okay. Yeah. But other than that, other than time zone difference, which is always, Mm -hmm. you know, going to be a complication in things. Yeah. Do you think that there's another any other kind of barriers or bridges, or do you think that um, aspiring writers, people looking for agents, should uh, look beyond their own borders? Hmm. I I think it really de- depends on their books. It often does make sense, I would say, to have a local agent. Um, you know, and, and so for my, I, I guess I feel local to New York, which is why I don't. I feel like I can say that. Um, for my own New York or, or American-based clients yeah. um, because I have the base there and they can process, you know, even just from a practical standpoint, the agency can process American checks and do things that I I wouldn't do from the UK. So I do think that's important. Um, it's really important to have your agent have a knowledge of whatever market they're working in. So yeah, if right. you think your book is going to sell in America, you want an an agent who has had experience, you know, living and meeting editors in America and keeping up with that. And, and, you know, proximity is just easier with that. And, and likewise, 
for British clients, I'm happy to be there. But I do think the U.S. office gives them extended reach with the U.S. publishers that I can do directly for them. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. It's, it's about about where I expect it. So it's like you you can do it, but it, you you should probably have a look locally first, and then consider uh, in more international um, business relationships. Is that sort of what you're? Absolutely. Yeah. I um like I'm thinking of different exceptions. Uh, there's a she's not a client. She's a good friend um, named Julian Best, who's a Canadian writer but lives in the UK. Mm-hmm. And in her agent search, I think she ended up um, with a North American agency. But I think for her case, because she though she's Canadian, she lives in Britain and has been published in Britain. I thought that she could actually probably look either way. Um, and so that those cases where maybe you're living abroad or you're living in Europe, but writing in English where you probably have a little bit more flexibility. Yeah. Well, if there's anything I've learned about publishing in the industry, it's that everyone has a very unique journey and, you know, things fall into place in completely different ways for everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is, yeah, not a one size fits all path. I, exactly. I don't think for anyone. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, Dialing back a bit, am I right in thinking, before you were a literary agent, did you start out in journalism? I did, yeah. I um, I thought I was going to be a magazine editor. Uh-huh. And so I went to school uh, for journalism at Northwestern and near Chicago. Um, and I realized I, they had a really great internship program and set me up with different magazines. And one of them was Book Magazine, which at the time was a sort of magazine for readers um based in new york and and funded by barnes and noble and i just found that i was much more interested in the book uh news and the the books that came in the mail and the smell of them and the (laughs) the author news and i um then sort of the production of the magazine though that was fun too and i've worked doing fact checking for new york magazine and it was just you know fun and fast paced but i I don't think I've got the personality for like hard hitting reporting. And, um, and I just, yeah, I really gravitated toward, toward the book world for sure. And that was the, I think the experience that clarified that for me. Yeah. Right. But you, um, I was having a look at your bio on, Mm. uh, on the, on the Wolf website Mm -hmm. and, uh, you do like to work with journalists on your, on your books. I do. I um, I love kind of their. They know how to shape a story, especially again like longer form magazine journalism or long form at a newspaper. Um, I think they really can see see how to shape it, and <laughs> and on a practical level, they they work to deadline and really take editing <laughs> really well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I find that's one place for my nonfiction. I look at a lot is just newspapers and magazines and see see the pieces that have kind of influenced and, and, and caught the eye of a certain writer and do you do you sort of do equal measure fiction and non-fiction or do you lean one way um it's both I, I would say I'm, I feel like fiction is where my heart has been for a long time but now I really divide equally okay. um you know more or less depending on what's capturing my attention and what my clients are up to right with um you say you work with a lot of journalists 
with the with that non-fiction side of things mm. do you approach people and ask and perhaps pitch ideas to specific journalists and things like that or is it more you see what a journalist is working on and then reach out to them and say would you be interested in writing a book on this thing both um it's yeah i would say both i i I, um i sometimes end up kind of going down wormholes that don't you know come to fruition i remember when i lived in brooklyn there was a big debate at the park slope food co-op um about boycotting products from israel and um they there it only it was so focused on local food but it was sort of hummus and the soda stream and became a real issue and a, and a journalist was writing about sort of the politics of hummus and i thought that could be a wonderful book but i it never quite we, <laughs> i'd write for the title the politics yeah. of hummus <laughs> <laughs> it just never quite um got to where it should have been and um and i'm sure it was frustrating for her and for me and that kind of thing can happen um but then, you know, on the flip side, I've had some real wonderful luck working with journalists and, and letting that, like, even if it's not quite the book I had in mind, it will end up being something really smart. So, okay. Um, yeah. Do you have a sort of network of journalists that you uh, reach out to, or are you always kind of looking to work with new ones? You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Always looking for new ones. Um, It's funny, my fiction clients tend to be more um, interconnected or recommend their friends a bit more. And I don't know if that's just because of... MFA programs or those circles. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe that's just like, I don't know if this is true, less competitive. That's probably not true. What am I saying? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know for whatever reason, yeah, the fiction clients tend to come from referrals and I feel like most of nonfiction when it's journalism is, is me reaching out individually. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you're not are you not currently open to submissions i am i am open to submissions now okay okay yeah, and, I, and i do read those queries and i do i have found some brilliant things in, in my queries yeah okay so yeah. talking about and this is something i ask all the agents that come on the show when you open up a submission and the submission package for wolf is is it, it's just a query letter and then 50 page writing sample yeah. For fiction, yeah. Yeah. And then for nonfiction, it's just the query letter and the detailed proposal, which is right. pretty standard. Mm-hmm. I'm interested that you don't ask for a synopsis, which a lot of agencies do. How come that's not a priority at Wolf? Mm. So it, for now, I would, and speaking for Wolf more generally, yeah. I think it's just f- for right now, the mix of agents we have and the kind of books we do. And I'll briefly mention my colleagues. So Lee Eisenman, who does nonfiction. And so most of that is just proposal based. And then my colleague, Rach, who also does a mix, but I would say she and I, Rach Crawford, our tastes are similar in that it's so much about voice and um, the kinds of books. I I think I can speak for that. Like 
can't really be spoiled, if you know what I mean, by knowing the plot because it's about the telling of the story and not yeah. just um, yeah, action or yeah, adventure yeah. necessarily, or even um, yeah, just I, we want a story, and I don't I don't mean to say that's not important, but um, to me, the synopsis and you know, and some writer's hand is going to be so different. So I'd rather skip ahead and just be reading, yeah, the actual work and not a long form synopsis. And if if you read a submission and it really grabs you, when you ask for the full manuscripts, do you also mm-hmm. ask for a synopsis or do you just go straight into the manuscript? I just go straight in and just keep reading. Okay. And, I, and just to clarify, the query letter does tend to have not a full synopsis at all, but, you know, just a couple... Uh, sentences or maybe a paragraph describing yeah. it, but kind of just that back of the book type copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's enough for me. So what makes a great query letter for you? So a, an ideal query letter would be something that I think is personalized and that shows that an author has done their research, um, that they, you know, it seems like it might be quicker just to send a big dear agent to anyone, but to me, if I see that they've kind of done their research and to know I'm what I'm representing, they've it just indicates a wider engagement with the literary world and that they're reading current material. Um, and, and likewise for that, it's helpful for me and for them to say somewhere that sort of it, their book would appeal to readers of so-and-so or was inspired by so-and-so. I think authors feel sometimes younger, newer author, authors don't want to say like, something that might imply like I'm the next Jonathan Franzen, which I also like wouldn't want to hear (laughs) or read. But I think if they, you know, you can say I've been inspired by Rachel Cusk or someone, just you can name your influences and your hoped for readership. And that helps me kind of understand how you'd like me to read the query. Yeah. I've seen people put it in people phrasing it in different ways where they say sort of, this would sit on the shelf alongside. X yeah, I like that one too. Um, do you like it when people do sort of uh, pop culture references? So it's like this: if this movie met this book or this television show. Yeah, I do actually. Um, I mean, any comps, something that's relevant and helpful and hip, but most of all accurate is important. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but also I will say any of that that the author can give us really helps us then put together a package for submitting to an editor if we t- decide to take the project on. Right. Um, those editors really use comp titles. And and for their purposes, books are still more helpful because they want to look at sales figures. But sure. I still think a, a pop cultural movie reference, um, you know, it, it indicates wide readership and, and it's fun and it's catching. So Yeah, yeah, I guess it grabs your attention. So what you sort of want, on a query letter and i think i think this is echoing what other agents have said on the podcast as well Mm -hmm. is that you want the the writer to sort of give at least the beginnings of what the marketing pitch will be to the editor or like have some idea of where the brand is yeah it, it helps to have um as many of those tools kind of in the arsenal as possible and it you know it's a balance because it's not the author's job per se to market themselves and that is where the agent needs to step in and and shape that but it helps it helps me to understand the book and and help me to understand how they see the book and and yeah that's just an important start to our relationship I guess it it also puts you in a good mindset because you're going to read that before you read the writing sample 
So it's yeah. going to, you're going to know what to expect at that point. So you're going to be more sort of open to it. Yeah. If, if someone said they were trying to kind of, or inspired by Cormac McCarthy, I think it would, you know, and then I get these short staccato sentences. I think that would also kind of give me a, oh, this is what you're going for and right. sort of put me in the right mood for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And so what are your pet peeves when you get a submission? Um, my pet peeves are kind of that dear agent thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, you get somewhere I feel for them because they're already defensive. You can just tell they've met with a lot of rejection and, but it's, um, it kind of comes across as rudeness to me, someone who they haven't met and who has not rejected them. And, yeah. um, that's just, I really do feel for writers cause it's a tough industry and no one actually wants to be sending out rejections to writers, but I, I know how they feel. And, um, and so any of those that are just kind of start immediately defensive or like, you don't know how brilliant I am and you'll probably turn this down, like isn't, isn't a good start. And you'd be surprised by how many of those show up in, wow, in agents' okay. inboxes. Um, and then I just ask for patience. And I think that's another thing that's not transparent to aspiring authors is how um, much we have to read and the order in which we need to read it, you know, as much as yeah. their novel might sound amazing and I'll intend to read it right away if my clients then deliver the two novels I've been waiting months for, or there's a nonfiction book, I have to just get out the door because it's timely and connected to a, you know, a, a non a newsy hook. Um, you know, those things just end up taking time. And then I also have a, a personal life. <laughs> yes, so exactly. I, yeah. <laughs> and what do you also have? I mean, it's very easy for people submitting to forget that agents, like the primary job of the agent is to represent the clients they already have, you know, and that's yes. a lot of paperwork and admin and, and meetings with publishers and editors and, and, you know, all this, that, the other. And then on top of that, you have the pile of reading that you have to do, which might, which, you know, I mean, I don't know what, what the numbers are like, but I would imagine, you know, one in 50 probably submissions you read, you will request or. or... That, yeah, that's, that figure is about right, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how many submissions do you get uh, sort of on average per week? Per week? Um, I would say four, 14, averaging like a couple a day. Um, okay, that's not too bad then. That's not too bad. It's not too bad. Um, yeah, it's not. <laughs> I've just done a big, a big clear out of like a hundreds um, that have just piled up from the last year, which I guess were, were more than what's half of 365 for 120. I'm not going to do the math on air, but uh, <laughs> <A> big number, <laughs> big number. <laughs> a lot of reading, a lot of pages and, and it's 50 pages, which is, well, I guess it depends on the font size, but. <laughs> it's not a short amount of write, of reading for each one. No, it's not. And I do really like to meaningfully consider the work I get. You know, and and there's some where it's just an uneasy pass. It's because I, I, I well, I might do a YA for a client or a children's book for a client. Um, yeah. Sorry, for a, for a colleague and do their UK rights. I don't myself handle that market. And so I you know, it might be a pass if someone just misfires something that I don't represent or sometimes, sure. you know, immediately like this isn't for me, but I, you know, there's a, 
a lot of middle type submissions where you do read the full 50 pages and maybe ask for more because it's good and you're on the fence perhaps and you want to see where it's going. Um, but then ultimately it's got to, it's so subjective, obviously, and you have to just fall head over heels. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, um, do you often send feedback for, uh, submissions or, or not really? Yeah, I try to, um, once, once it starts piling up, I, I know I miss things. Um, right. yeah, yeah. My, I, I really try to kind of make sure everyone knows that I've read something. I, I have learned over the years that the more detailed I am with feedback, the more likely a writer might quickly kind of almost patchily try to fix what I've said needed fixing. And that might not have been the only issue or it might uh, yeah. have been me trying to help them, but that's not, you know, I still knew it wasn't quite for me if it was just because of that connection, you were just really new to something. And so I just for years, I was doing this and just getting a lot more back and I would feel kind of responsible and want to reread it for them. And, and you just, I can't, I can't maintain that. Right. Um, so so like, I've learned um, leading them on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> to be pretty clear in my feedback. Okay. Right, and succinct. Right, right. But yeah, I try to be honest as well. Okay. So it's January, 2022, and you've mm -hmm. opened up submissions again. Mm -hmm. Is there anything specific in this year that you're looking to add to your list, whether that's genre, age range, style, whatever? Um, I always have a little wish list. Um, I would love to find a cause on the fiction side, although I think the right nonfiction would be interesting. Um, kind of books about protest. Um, okay. I've been really captivated by Hong Kong. Um, yeah. and, yeah. And so I think it'd be interesting to see that treatment in a novel, um, what's going on. I've, I'm always on the hunt for things kind of set in Eastern Europe. Um, I'm interested in what's happening in Israel and Palestine. And, and so seeing that, um, I, I, I'd love a fictionalized treatment of that just because I think you can, I'd love to see that through a character's deeper, um, lens, um, yeah, that would be interesting. I'd love a, I, I have a, one of the journalists I reached out to was a true, is writing a true crime novel. And that's something that I'm really interested in exploring more. And for me, that has to be literary and empathetic and sort of very responsible um, to the people you're writing about. But I would love to see more of that. Um, yeah. I don't know if that gives a flavor. Yeah, no, it sounds good. Sounds like you want like sort of um, political, sort of social uh, disruption sort of topics, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and nonfiction wise, I'm always looking for social justice books and books that sort of cast a light too on underrepresented or yeah, undercovered communities. Okay, sure. Yeah. I think that's a good broad selection for everyone listening. <laughs> and um, before I ask you which book you'd take to the desert island, uh, what advice would you give um, writers this year who are looking to get an agent who are on submission and querying? Um, I would say to make it a goal to be rejected a certain amount of times <laughs> and flip that. I, I saw, um, it was actually an editor who did this and who also writes, say that 
that was her goal for, I think it was a couple of years back, but I was so impressed by that because it just makes you keep trying. If you want 25 rejections, um, you know, you make that the goal because it shows that you've been putting your work out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've heard that before. I, I, I spoke to someone who, whose goal was to get a hundred rejections in a year. And it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> pace yourself out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it, it shows that you are making progress. You are putting your work out there. Presumably they were making updates uh, as they got the rejections. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a way to do that sort of responsibly yeah. and productively for sure. Um, and I would, I want to add one more thing, which I think is really important for writers to do is just support their literary community. Read read books and buy short story magazines. And um, I think that's really important, not only to hone your own craft, not only to support the industry that you want to someday give you money to write, um, but because it comes back around, I think writers are a community. Um, yeah. yeah. I've definitely, yeah, definitely experienced that. And it, you know, it doesn't take much searching on Twitter to, to find the sort of the hashtags and things where there's a very um, supportive and, and large community of writers, aspiring writers, and, and, and also just the kind of extensions around uh, the industry. The publishing industry generally is very friendly, um, in my experience anyway. I, I really agree. I think there's this idea of people being gatekeepers. Um, and I, I think the, the chill probably comes from busyness and people just not being able to respond to everything. And, um, but no, I don't really believe anyone wants to ghost writers or, or turn them down. We're gatekeepers only in the sense that we want to be opening gates. You know, I want every next book I read to be something I can take on. And I really think that's true for my colleagues across the industry. Yeah, definitely. That's, it's a really nice way of thinking about it. Whenever you, every query submission that you open, you're hoping that that's going to be something that you want to sign up and you want to get out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings us to... My desert island book. <laughs> exactly. If you were stranded on a desert island and could have one book with you, which would it be? Um, so I know you gave me plenty of warning about this book. <laughs> and I... The, I guess I will go with my first instinct, which was, um, and I'm only hesitant because it feels so boring, but <laughs> I do th think Middlemarch would be, okay. uh, it would be the one I would take because I think it is something that a second read and a third read would, you know, bring nuance to. I've only read it once in my twenties. So I was a late reader to it and already now I can see from, you know, a decade later, yeah, how that would change my reading of hopefulness and career and and um, poor Dorothea. <laughs> so I, yeah, I think that's the one that would last oh, last me. <laughs> it's amazing. Island. It's amazing how I've been. Uh, I have a young niece, so I've been rewatching a lot of uh, Disney, like the sort of classic animated things recently. And it's mm. amazing how when you're older, you come back to these things, and you have there's just such a whole new light on the whole on the story and the way that it kind of pans out and stuff that's really cool i'm looking forward to that with my daughter is <laughs> like i love the pop-up books but i cannot wait for her to start reading the stuff that i loved reading and yeah 
force yeah. it upon her probably until I drain the love of literature. <laughs> you will read this and you will enjoy it. Yes, exactly. You will love this. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for coming on uh, and chatting with me and, and sharing your experience and your knowledge um, uh, of the industry and, and everything entailed within that. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for everyone listening, uh, if you want to keep up with everything that Kate is doing, you can follow her on Twitter at Spinning Kates. Uh, you can follow the agency at Wolf Literary, uh, and you can go to their website, which is currently in holding, but I'm sure it will be up soon. And that's wolflit.com. Uh, to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Right and Wrong UK and on Instagram at Right and Wrong Podcast. Thanks again, Kate, and thanks to everybody listening. We will catch you on the next episode. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.